be in Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3 today. So let me pray one more time. God, open your word to us. All hearts are open to you and you see us. And so God, speak to us what we need to hear. Even if it's something we didn't know we needed to hear, speak to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 52 days, 52 days, the people of Israel repaired the broken, ruined walls of Jerusalem. And they did this without a backhoe, without a crane, without quick mix cement, without a Home Depot that they could rent a truck from and go and get supplies. they, They built this in 52 days because they were united by a common vision. And they accomplished something in that, within the realms of that vision, they accomplished something that 2,500 years later absolutely astounds us, which is why it's impossible to look at the book of Nehemiah without observing and taking note of the leadership and vision of its namesake, without looking at the leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man of vision, and so he's a man of action. You know, people with vision, people like Nehemiah, see what other people cannot see or maybe even what other people do not want to see. They see what others cannot see. And so Nehemiah looks at the city of Jerusalem, sees its broken down walls, and sees disgrace and vulnerability and shame. He sees people in trouble and disgrace. Meanwhile, the people living in Jerusalem have just kind of gotten used to it. And so they leave their house. Anybody can come and take over the city without even really having to try. They leave their house every day and they look where walls should be and see countryside and they say, well, at least we have a nice view. Nehemiah sees what other cannot see. He sees that as a problem. Nehemiah's story points to the God who gives vision to his people. Proverbs says, without vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29, 18, without vision, the people perish. Nehemiah's is a story of a God who gives vision to leaders so they can have a future and a hope. Um, If you're just joining us or if you slept through last week, um, that's okay, here's the backstory. Nehemiah is the royal cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Babylon. Nehemiah is a Jew. His homeland is in Judah, in Israel. The city there is Jerusalem. Nehemiah has never once laid eyes on it. He's never seen it. And yet when he bumps into his cousin, Hanani, when he, when he runs into him in the city of Susa in Babylon, Nehemiah can't help but ask, hey, what's going on back home? What's going on in Jerusalem? And what Hanani has to say is not good. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, Hanani says... Things are not going well for those who've returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah hears this and he falls to his knees and he begins to weep. The text says in verse 4 that he spent days fasting and weeping and mourning over a city, which is so confusing to us. It's strange. I mean, why is Nehemiah brokenhearted over this? I mean, is he just that guy with too many power tools and not enough to do with it? Do you know what I mean? Or is there something deeper? There is. You see, for Nehemiah, his brokenheartedness over the walls is really brokenheartedness over people. People in trouble and disgrace in a city that leaves them vulnerable and defenseless. For Nehemiah, it's not about a wall, it's about people, but it's even something more than that. Last week when I was actually working through the text with us last week, I noticed, I noticed a verse I hadn't seen really 
chapter 1, verse 11, where the Lord says, when Nehemiah is praying, he says, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. If you have a Bible, I'd underline that. Listen to the prayers of us who, who what? They delight in honoring you. You see, for Nehemiah, he's been raised on the Psalms. He's been raised as a Jew to believe that God loves Jerusalem more than any other city. That God loves Israel and his people more than any other people. Fun fact, God's favorite city is not Washington, D.C. Fun fact, uh, God's favorite country is not America. His favorite city his favorite city is Jerusalem. His favorite country is his people. Not even the, the borders that you and I know on the map. The people of God are his favorite. And, and this city that is broken down and in disrepair and in disgrace means that God's reputation is at stake in a particular way. It's not about people. It's not even about the walls. It's about honoring the Lord. Frederick Buechner says that the place God calls us is the place where your deep joy and the world's deep hunger meet. The place that God's called you is, is where your great joy and the world's deep hunger meet, and that's true. But he's missing a piece. You see, the place that God calls us, the place that God blesses, the place that explosive things happen is when our deep joy and the world's great hunger meet and are combined by and multiplied by the passion of God. So I made a formula. This is the most mathematical I've ever been in my life. That joy plus hunger times passion for God's reputation is vision. Joy plus hunger times passion is vision. You know, Nehemiah sees the world's deep hunger, sees that his people need restored, see that the walls need built, see that their disgrace needs to be taken away from them. He, he, he has joy in doing this thing because he has passion for the Lord. And the Lord is so pleased by this that when Nehemiah in chapter 2 asks for the king's permission to go and rebuild the wall, which is this really great piece, anytime you're studying the Old Testament, watch for when the action slows down and speeds up. It's just like a movie. Uh, we didn't come up with that. That, that, those, that first half of chapter 2 is just a handful of moments. It's like slow-mo. And, and, and Nehemiah says, the king granted these requests, this is at the end of verse 8, the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. The king granted this request because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah's hunger and passion for the Lord's glory and, and, his, and the joy come together and the Lord puts his hand on Nehemiah to give him great success. That's what happens with vision. That's what happens with vision that, that stirs God's heart. He blesses it. He puts his hand on it and gives it success. Nehemiah, by this point, is now overtaken by this vision. And it's not Nehemiah's vision. It's the vision God gave Nehemiah. It's not a possession. It's a stewardship. And so Nehemiah has been taken over by this, this vision for the restoration, not just of the wall, but, but the Lord's people. Every thought, every breath, every step, every moment is consumed as Nehemiah thinks about repairing this wall. Uh, he's up in the middle of the night trying to figure out. And so Nehemiah, in chapter 2, verse 11, comes rolling into Jerusalem. 
The king has given him permission, but the king has given him more than that. He's given him supplies. He's given him a military support. And so Nehemiah rolls in with soldiers, supplies, and a plan. But oddly, Nehemiah doesn't tell anybody what the plan is. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I'd not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Nehemiah keeps his plan a secret. Secrecy makes us uncomfortable. We have a 24-hour news cycle. We have WikiLeaks. We, we, we have um, this thing that our parents taught us, which the other campus didn't know. So let's see if, you, if you're smarter. Secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt some. Is that a generational thing? I don't know. They all looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, it's true. Secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone. We, so Nehemiah's secrecy kind of catches us off guard. I mean, Nehemiah, if your plan is so good, why aren't you sharing it? But Nehemiah shows us the difference between being secretive and being strategic. Nehemiah shows us the difference between secret, being secretive and being strategic. Because if Nehemiah had done what Kyle wanted to do, which is come into town and jump up on a roof and tell everybody about this plan that God had given me, about building the wall and, and, and restoring the people, all of the detail-oriented people in the room would have been like, excuse me, here's the 17 things that you've not thought of. Um, excuse me, I don't understand. Ex- uh, my, my wife's personality, she's an S on the Myers-Briggs. They're always like, okay, so we're going to build a wall. Exactly how are we going to do that? And my response is usually, I don't know, we're just going to build a wall. Anybody that works for me is like, how do we do that? And I'm like, I don't know, figure that out. Um, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's a pain, I think. And, and Nehemiah knows in order to be strategic, he, he needs to know exactly what he's asking people to do. So he slips out in the middle of the night. He gets on a donkey and he rides around to look at the perimeter of the city to get his eyes on exactly what he's asking people to do. Exactly what are we about to do here? He needs to know. He can't just guess at it. He's got to have a plan. And so Nehemiah sneaks out. He keeps the vision to himself. He inspects the wall. He looks closely at what has to be done. And it's in this moment, Nehemiah's vision actually becomes a strategy. Nehemiah's vision becomes a plan. Nehemiah says that God had put it into his heart to build the wall for Jerusalem. This is the vision that God had put into his heart. I love Nehemiah's language. Nehemiah has a vision that he's certain about. He's certain that God's gracious hand is on him. And Nehemiah now has the facts. He has everything he needs to share the plan. So Nehemiah shares the plan in chapter 2, verse 16. It says, The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anybody about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Did you notice he repeated the word? Hanani says, uh, the people are in trouble and disgrace. And so Nehemiah seals that word and says, look, we need to end this disgrace. Nehemiah doesn't go and share his plan with all 4,500 people at the time. He just shares it with with the leaders and it says... I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's get a couple of bids and compare the prices. 
They, they replied at once, yes, let's give it to a committee for review. They replied, let's turn, give a petition around and, and see how people really feel about this. They said, yes, let's do some focus groups to feel out. Uh, yes, let's, let's try some Facebook advertising to see you know, if there's some traction here. They said, yes, let's, let's, let's file the forms in triplicate. There is no committee. There is no vote. Nehemiah says, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And, and, and look at what they say. Yes. Let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. There's no committee, there's no vote, there's no review process, and that's because good leaders do not find consensus, they mold it. Good leaders don't find consensus, they mold it. They go out and find differing opinions and differing strategies. They don't just get the people that agree with them and go, they get all of these people together and they mold consensus. Let me tell you a little dirty little secret of the Bible. Um, without any biblical evidence, in fact, all, all biblical evidence is to the contrary, churches think that vision is given to a group. Churches and organizations think that vision is given to a group. I work with other pastors in the area as areas of visioning and implementation. So I have some coaching clients. I talk to them on the phone. Hey, I think God's given us this vision to do this thing. So I start working them through that. And when we begin, every pastor says the same thing to me. They say, you know, they've just got to figure out what their vision is. Talking about the church, they say they've just got to figure out what their vision is. Okay, two problems with that. There, there's a lot of problems with that, and I could go on, but there's two major issues with that. First of all, as long as I'm your pastor, there is no like me and you, there is only us. So it's not like y'all need to figure this out and I'll be here when you're done. It's we need to figure out, we as a community. But at a deeper level, do you know what never happens in Scripture? God never gives a vision to a group. God always gives a vision to a leader. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, David, Solomon, Deborah. God always gives a vision to a leader. And then that leader's job, and this is what leadership is, leadership is then going and sharing that vision and casting that vision and refining that vision. There's accountability for the leader because it's probably gonna go on, we set up guardrails. Vision in the Bible is not a democratic process, but it's also not autocratic either. It's not a dictatorship, it's a spiritual process that is deeply rooted in prayer. I mean, do you see how many times in the book of Nehemiah he prays? It's a corporate process then of corporate discernment. Kyle, is that a vision or is that a bad taco? Uh, it, did you just like have, like, did you reheat that taco meat last night and it not go well for you? Or is this really from the Lord? And there's accountability after accountability after accountability. There is like, between me and total control of anything is about five miles. Not just of red tape and policy, but of people that would body check me to the floor. First in line is my wife. And then the list goes on and on. I'm like picturing all of you in my, in my head. Vision is not democratic or autocratic, it is spiritual, it is from the Lord, it is corporate, it is a process of discerning. And Nehemiah takes this vision and he shares it with this small group of leaders in Jerusalem. He says, I shared it with the priests, the nobles, the officials, and other administrators. He shared it with the priests, which were the spiritual leaders. He shared it with the nobles, who are the hereditary leaders. He, he shared it with the bureaucrats, the officials, and he shared it with other administrators. There's a job title. Other, what do you do for the government? I'm an other administrator. 
But when he shares it with this group, they reply, let's begin the good work. Let's build the wall. And so you turn the page into Nehemiah 3, and we get to everybody's favorite part of the Bible. Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the, far as, as far as the, the, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zachar, son of Imri. The fish gate was, oh my gosh, make it stop, right? Here's this long list of names and people and places that we have never seen. You know, you get sometimes have these headers above the chapters in your Bible. Mine says rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Here's what it really should be is, is all hands on deck. All hands on deck. This long list in chapter three goes to show that everybody heard this vision. Everybody heard this vision and they were compelled by it and they put their hands to the work. Nehemiah, and it's also trying to tell us a little bit about how the wall was built, because Nehemiah is really smart. They don't build the wall section by section. They don't say, all right, group, all of us, we're going to build this section and then move to the next one. Can I tell you why? Because they would have all killed each other. That's called too many chefs in the kitchen. No, what they do is they divide up the work among the people of Israel. Um, they divide it up amongst the priests and people from different settlements nearby. They divide it up amongst like craftsmen, like goldsmith and perfumers. They divide it up amongst the residents of the city district by district so that if you live by the wall, the tenants live by the wall, it's our job to build this section. And Vanessa and Steph, they live next door to us, so they're going to build this section. Um, and, and Harry and Kathy live here, so they're going to build this section. If you didn't live in the city, we assigned you other sections. Let me tell you why this is brilliant. This is brilliant military strategy because you got to understand that Sanballat and Tobiah, the regional governors, do not want this to happen and they have soldiers too. And so they could come at any moment and take over the city. Well, a wall is not super defensive if you just have one section 30 feet high and nothing. So they build the whole wall at one time up together. Because let me tell you why. If you're a soldier, even two foot of a wall is enough to kind of cause you a problem. Even two foot of a wall is a good strategic defense. And so they take the wall in one fell swoop and they build it 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 and absolutely everybody has their hands on deck. In fact, in chapter three, verse 12, this is actually one of my favorite verses in all of the book of Nehemiah. And I don't think it's on the screen. Chapter three, verse 12 says, Shalom, son of Halohesh, not hello fresh, Shalom, son of Halohesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was the leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. So you have women involved in this text. And chapter three is a very male, it's a very male text. It's all so-and-so, son of so-and-so, and their brothers. But here you have a guy who has only daughters. But they live in this part of Jerusalem, and they say, he says, me and my girls, we're going to build this too. I love the Bible. It's so interesting. This guy has only daughters, and he says, we're going to do this part too. No, they're not going to cook. They're not going to clean. They're not going to, you know, do this. No, they're going to help me build this section. Here's what happens when vision takes over and all hands get on deck. When vision takes over, the most surprising people get involved. The most surprising people get involved. Um, at Grace Campus, we, we started a new ministry this week 
called Geronimo. Uh, Lindsay, if you know her, worked her tail on this, uh, tail off on this since about January of this year. We had 25 kids the first night, which is huge. And we developed a ministry called Place for Parents. It's a support group for parents just to kind of learn about how to walk their kids with them walk with their kids, and we knew we needed some extra people in the room, and a lot of you know Sid. He comes here. Uh, he's at both campuses, sometimes runs sound, and we really prayed and felt like Sid needed to be involved in place for parents, and uh, so we said to Sid, hey, would you come and be one of the mentors in this group, and Sid goes, oh, heck no. No way, and then I did what everybody hates when their pastor does. I said, hey, why don't you pray about it? Gosh darn it. So we went and prayed, and God, he said yes, and the other first night, and it was great, and the leader of the group, Dan, said it was great. I mean, when, when vision takes over, you find yourself doing things you never thought you'd do. When vision takes over, you find yourself being part of everything. The sons and the daughters, the daughters of Shalom, rise up out of nowhere to build their portion of the wall. I love it. But it's not all happy-clappy. It's not all happy-clappy, because, you know, I said all hands are on deck. That's not entirely true. Look at chapter 3, verse 5, because it says, next were the people from Tekoa, which is a village outside Jerusalem. So some Jews were living outside Jerusalem, so they brought them back. They came in to build the wall. It's their capital city. Everybody's going to get involved. Next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. Jerks. Next are the people from Tekoa, and the people from Tekoa come, but their leaders, the village leaders, don't come to help. And then look back at chapter 2, just up a little bit, verse 19 and 20. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. If you want to to torpedo your marriage, scoff contemptuously, contemptuously at your spouse. See how that goes. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? He said, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. I love that line. You have no share, legal right, or historic claim. I felt like we were experiencing some spiritual warfare in a little bit of our week this week, and I remember opening this up, and I prayed like that the enemy has no share, legal right or historic claim in what's going on. And I love that line. Here's the deal. Vision isn't vision unless somebody doesn't like it. Vision isn't vision unless somebody doesn't like it. And if everybody likes it, you do not have vision. If everybody likes it, you do not have vision. Jesus, I mean, he's Jesus. Like, look at the picture which is so racially incorrect. But look at that picture. Who doesn't like Jesus? Actually, a lot of people. Okay, uh, if Jesus is going to be opposed, then in his vision, vision is as uniting as it is dividing uh, because it disrupts. Vision disrupts people who had influence and power in one season but are losing it in the next. Vision disrupts people who had influence and power in one season but are losing it in the next. You know, the village leaders in Tekoa got to rule their village unchallenged. Well, now they have a new regional governor named, named Nehemiah who's coming in and bossing them around. The influence and power they had in this season was just taken away. Sanballat and Tobiah and what's-his-face, the Arab, they had, they had power in a season, but when Jerusalem, when, when Jerusalem becomes a city again, when Nehemiah is named the regional governor, they're losing power. People oppose vision 
because they're losing power and influence in the new season. Vision isn't vision unless it's opposed. You know, in 2013, we moved here from Illinois and we left the, like, the fortress of conservative evangelicalism known as Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College to become United Methodist Pastors a pastor in the United Methodist Church, a church that I didn't think, frankly, was biblical, a church that I thought, like, had lost its cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You know what I mean? Like, the marbles are gone, a few crayons short of the full box, like, the whole thing. People met that with some challenge, people that we loved and trusted. In 2014, we planted a church called Regen, and everybody said, why in the heck are you doing this? You don't even know what you're doing. I said, you're right, but here we are. In 2015, after doing this for a year, uh, we got sent to our other campus, Grace Church, in 2015. And everybody said, and, and they had all the right leadership lines. Well, you can't do two things well, and what are they doing, and why are they doing this, and you're so crazy, and we lost people over that. But at every moment, we've had people tell us we're nuts, and at every moment, Jesus has shown up. At every moment, we've had people tell us that we're nuts. At Grace, we changed the way that we did children's ministry there they had done it on Thursday afternoons forever. It wasn't working. With my first three months, pastors, by the way, are told never to change anything in like the first year. And I was like, well, that's a stupid rule. So I changed it within three months. We changed it. And everybody said, this isn't going to work. We had 27 kids there two Tuesdays ago. We had this idea to do this thing called Geronimo. And everybody said, this is beneath us. I don't know why we need to do this. Why, are, why is tutoring kids our problem? We had 25 kids show up the other night with the largest volunteer staff that Grace Church has ever had for an ongoing ministry. When we were going to move Regen to the mornings, we'd been at night for two and a half years and it wasn't working and so we said we're going to move it to the mornings and we announced it here on a Sunday night in February and a person that had been in and out of our community off and on for a handful of years spent the half hour after church telling me everything I'd ever done to hurt her and that I'd done wrong and why it was a stupid idea to move to the mornings and I'm looking around the room and half of you weren't here this winter at nighttime a vision isn't a vision unless it's opposed you know, we, uh, this summer, spent a couple days with mentors from our days at Moody, uh, my undergrad, and uh, they're married. They did our pre-marriage counseling. I was their teacher assistant. We're very, very close with them. They're coming out in April to do a marriage event um, that I would so encourage you to put on your calendar. It's going to be phenomenal. We love this couple, Bob and Pam. And at one point, I said to them, you know, thank you so much for believing in us uh, because Everybody kind of looked at us, we were crazy. When I started the Methodist Church, I, I, I wrote a blog called um, On Becoming United Methodist, colon, I'm Not Crazy. It's one of the most popular posts I've ever written, one of the most popular pace, posts on my Facebook page. And I had like people from Moody reaching out and being like, I'm glad to know that you're still okay. <laughs> you're working at Starbucks and I'm pastoring, so you tell me who wins. We should delete that from the recording. Um, <laughs> you know, when you have a vision, it always divides. And you can't have confidence in yourself. This is not the Disney channel. The answer is not like, believe in your heart. Like, believe in yourself. Um, the answer is always um, trusting in the God who called you. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God's going to give you a vision for your life, and people are going to hate it. But that's how you know it's working. You know that you're in the right place when there's challenge. 
And if it's easy, if it's easy, you're not in the, you're not in the best place. Easy places are the most dangerous for our souls. Nehemiah builds the wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. Nehemiah's deep gladness, the work of restoring his people, meets the world's deep hunger to rebuild the city and is multiplied by exponentially by Nehemiah's passion to be doing what delights and honors God. And so they build the wall in 52 days. 52 days they built this wall. That's crazy. Nehemiah's is this story about vision. Nehemiah's life is just overtaken by, by this dream. Nehemiah's life is just changed by this vision. And so here's my question. Jesus always ended his teaching with questions. So here's my question for you. What vision orders your life? What vision drives you? What vision of what could be of the good life is driving you? You know, because I started putting this sermon together and I was taking it in the wrong direction. I was going to tell you, here's how to have a vision for your life because the assumption there was you don't have a vision and I realized that's wrong. The question isn't whether or not you have a vision. The question is whether the vision that orders all of who you are is worthy of Jesus. The question is whether all of what drives all of who you are, what orders your relationships and your time and your money and your politics and your identity and every little bit about you, the question is whether or not that's a vision that's worthy of Jesus. You know, we talked about Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. without a vision, the people perish. A friend of mine kind of does a word play on that and he says, without a vision, people cherish. They cherish the wrong things. And suddenly good things overtake the best thing. And so the question is whether or not you have a vision that's worthy of Jesus. You see churches without vision begin to talk about and cherish the carpet and the music and the decorations and the past. Families without vision become less and less about laughter and intimacy and more and more about screen time. Marriages without vision become boring and routine. And suddenly your coworker starts to look more attractive than your spouse. And it's not because that coworker is more attractive than your spouse, it's because you've never seen your coworker clip their toenails at the dining room table, which neither of us do. I've been told not to use that illustration and I forgot. And I, I, we don't, but. <laughs> without a vision, you and I will run on the gas of poor vision, on money or stuff and time, our sexuality, uh, our family, our politics. I mean, we will choose something other than Jesus and that will fuel our vision for ourselves and we will run after it and run after it and run after it when in reality, the call of Jesus in our life is for him to be our greatest vision, the vision that eclipses anything else. It is not Jesus and, but Jesus only. It is not Jesus and my money, Jesus and my comfort, Jesus and my politics, uh, Jesus and this, Jesus and that. It is Jesus only. He eclipses everything else, and then that brings order to family and to money and to time and to every other part of our identity, which is why Jesus says, and if you ever want to know, this is my favorite verse in all of scripture, Matthew 13, 45 and 46, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. 
And when he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. See, the call of Jesus on our lives is for his vision to so eclipse everything else that we gladly and freely and joyfully lay down these other lesser, maybe good, but lesser visions for Jesus and Jesus only. And guys, as I work with people and they're growing in their faith, there's always this yeah, but. There's always this yeah, but. There's always like, I really wanted to be in church, uh, but, but there was a concert last night. Yeah, I really wanted to be a part of that small group, but my, my family had a birthday party the other night. Yeah, I really wanted to be there. And it's even those good things that begin to crowd Jesus out of our life. And soon he operates at the periphery, kind of there for when stuff falls out the bottom and when you need him instead of it being only Jesus. My question is, what vision do you have for your life? And maybe it's even better to not say what orders your life, but who. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Jesus, we just have these other things. And they're good and right, but even good and right things can crowd you out. And so Jesus, we pray that you would become more beautiful to us. That you would become more real to us. That you would eclipse other treasure. Uh, the prayer that we're given says, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, God, you see inside of our hearts. And so as you sent Jesus to flip tables in the temple, would you send Jesus into us again to flip all those treasures out that we may have him and him alone? Jesus, this journey of ordering our priorities is lifelong. You call it discipleship. So help us to follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.